0: The Mass in Slow Motion by Father Ronald Knox The Introductory Sermon Somebody, I forgot who, wrote his reminiscences of the years 1914-18 through under the title One Man's War. I thought I should like to plagiarize that title and make up a kind of meditation under the heading One Priest Mass. I suppose it is the experience of all of us that the Mass, with its terrific uniformity, unvarying throughout Latin Christendom, varying so little from one feast or season to another, does not impose uniformity on our thoughts. Merely because the words and gestures are so familiar, we don't rest content with their immediate significance. We read fresh meanings of our own into them, treat them as a kind of ciphered language in which we communicate our aspirations to Almighty God. It's an odd reflection, then, that when I say Mass, or you hear it, though the words and the gestures are the same, and you would think there was no difference at all except the sins we thought about at the Confiteor and the intentions we remembered for the living and the dead, in fact, there is a difference. The devotional overtones, the mystical nuances which the words and the ceremonies of the Mass suggest to us, are not, probably, the same for you and for me. So I thought I would come clean, and try to analyze, thus publicly, the inwardness of my own Mass. Talk about the odd bells that ring in my own mind, the odd vistas that open up in my own view, to close again at once in the hope that they may have some value for other people. Let me say at once I know nothing about liturgy, so you won't get any of the orthodox sidelights of the Mass which they give you in the books. Also. That I'm thinking about low mass. It is a long time since I had to sing high mass, and when I did, the only thought I can remember entertaining was a vivid hope that I might die before we got to the preface. The psalm Utica. What a disconcerting thing it is about the Hebrew idiom devotion, that the psalms are always saying, I am upright, I am innocent, I never did anything to deserve this punishment whereas we are always wanting to say we are miserable sinners. Here we prepare for the Confidior by assuring God that we have walked innocently, and asking him to distinguish very carefully between us and the wicked. When I say this psalm, then, what should I think about? Perhaps about myself as the representative of the Christian church, so isolated, so shut away, in idea at least, from all the busy wickedness of the world. The Mass starts with the Church pushing the world away from her. The lodge is tiled. There are no profane onlookers. It is a cozy family party, just ourselves. Then, the confitior. That is more personal. Not that I fancy we are meant to be thinking precisely about our sins, rather about our sinfulness, not so much the sinners we are as the sinful sort of people we are, with no right to claim the sort of intimacy we are going to claim in coming before God. Well, we shall have to remember that God is almighty and merciful, and go ahead as best we can. And then that splendid ceremony of kissing the altar as you say, quorum reliqui hic sunk, a keyhole through which you look right back into the catacombs, mass over the tombs of the martyrs. The church, unaging, her days bound each to each by natural piety. The introit gives you a nice sense of squaring your shoulders and opening out a bit. You have forgotten the fears and scruples that assailed you at the foot of the altar. You crash into the liturgy of the day in a good hearty voice, and then suddenly, the old trouble comes back again. Only I think in a different form: sins or no sins. What are you, a man, a creature, that you should be standing up and talking to God like this, as if a conversation with him were the most natural thing in the world? Back you go to the middle of the altar, feeling an utter worm, Kiria a again and again, begging his pardon for your ridiculous self-sufficiency and imagining, even for a moment, that you had a right to stand up straight, instead of burying your head in your hands. You remind yourself, with the Gloria, of what God is, in a stammering, apologetic sort of way, so that you find yourself thanking him for being so glorious, not a thing you do as a rule. And from that you turn to a paean of praise in honor of our blessed Lord, hiding behind him, covering yourself in him, to get the technique of your approach to Almighty God right, after all. And so you go back to your post at the side, a little reassured, and start again with the colic's. I rather like a lot of colics. It's nice to have a lot of different subjects of conversation when you are going to talk to God. When people ask us to say a prayer for some particular intention, our first reaction is perhaps to think it a, nuis- a nuisance. But surely we ought to regard each intention as a new excuse for claiming God's attention, Like that of a child, when it thinks it's fun to be sent a message to its father, because it is so splendid to be allowed for once to interrupt him in his study. So with these obscure saints, these much-thumbed imperatas, an excellent opportunity for making our conversation with God last longer. The colics we ought to think of as perhaps SOS messages, expressing, in as brief a term as possible, the needs of the Church. Then, for the epistle, there is a relaxing of strain. The epistle is a letter, written quite a long time ago to us and we read it out at a leisurely way. For once, it is the only part of the Mass of which you can say that you stand at ease. Your hands escape from their rigid discipline. It is an interval, a pause, accidentally protracted by one or two bits of liturgy which were so obviously meant to be sung that they do not go naturally at low Mass. Even the sequences, beautiful as they are, seem to cry out for the music. They are not reciting pieces. And now you have an expedition to make, a sort of polar expedition to the unvisited wilds at the north end of the altar. Nothing is ever said or done there except for the readings out of the words of life, extracts from those precious fragments which tell us what happened when God came to earth. Accordingly, we brace ourselves for this unaccustomed journey by a special dedication of our lips, those unclean lips of ours, which are responsible all day long for so much gossip, Uncharity, unkindness, grousing, flattery, boasting, and perhaps even profanity. They need a kind of solve before we take the words of life on them. And not only our lips, you will notice, but our hearts. That's the tragedy of it, that the gospel never seems to grip us, you see. We know it by heart. What an odd phrase that is, isn't it, knowing a thing by heart? Because when we are talking about the gospels, that's just the way we don't know them. Still, one reads the gospel and kisses the book at the end and hopes that somehow the messages of it will steal through those lips, into the heart, which is read though through it so coldly, so inattentively. Then, if it is one of those big days, you get the credo as something of a relief. If charity has burnt so low, there is still faith anyhow, The credo, with those phrases at the beginning which send your mind sometimes rocketing up heavenwards without very much consciousness of what it is you are saying, and the splendid dramatic moment of the et homo factus est, with the noise of kicking and scraping behind you, where rheumatic knees are being laboriously bent in honor of God made man. And then follows the odd Dominus Vobiscum and Oremus, which isn't followed by a prayer. I suppose it once came just in front of the secret prayers, or something like that. Standing inconclusive as it does, it has the suggestion of being a mere excuse for taking a peep behind you, and seeing that the congregation are still there. Good, they are. This is where the congregation get their look in. The offertory is, in theory, the whole congregation surging up into the sanctuary, and presenting you, the priest, with the bread and wine, their contribution to the mysteries. Actually, in their name, a small boy emerges from the background, probably with hiccups. At first sight, you are tempted to regard him as an unwelcome distraction. Then, you remember that he stands there in the name of the congregation, offering you unconsecrated wine and saying, I suppose this wouldn't be of any use. Then the lavabo, with the psalm in which you start protesting your own innocence, just as at the preparatio, Once more, the lodge is being tiled. The catechumens are supposed to be going away. Once more, we remind ourselves that we are a family party. The secret prayers are said over the unconsecrated bread and wine, and are always about them. It is as if we had to whisper them in our embarrassment, feeling like a boy with the five loaves again, how ridiculously inadequate they are as the raw material for a miracle just as everything we give to God is ridiculously inadequate to the purposes for which his grace makes it effective. You will often find that apologetic note in the secret prayers. Then comes the first of those three sudden emergences from silence into sound, with the words, Promnia secula seculorum, that lend to the Mass, from the unliturgical layman's point of view, a good deal of its atmosphere of mystery. When you hear it from the congregation, you feel as if the priest was being torn between two different instincts, one of which tells him that what he is saying is much too sacred to be said out loud, while the other tells him that it is much too important not to be said out loud. First, one instinct, then the other, getting the mastery. From the priest's own point of view, I think the first peromnia has an evident psychological value. The mind tends to accompany the voice by force of habit. And the mere fact of breaking out into speech after a happily arranged preface of silence encourages the mind to an outburst of praise just at a moment when it is apt to have gone off daydreaming. And I think it has a symbolic value in that way. We ought, obviously, to be praising God at every moment of our lives. Obviously we aren't. Consequently, when we do start praising God, it is right that we should do it in a sort of nervous scurry like a man who has just remembered that he has got a train to catch. The search Corda, which invites us to praise, incites us, at the same time, to contrition. How terrible that our heart should be continually groveling and have to be hoisted up in this almost undignified way in the rare occasions when we really do praise God. And then the splendors of the preface, with the various ranks of angels flashing past us like the names of suburban stations as we draw closer to the heart of a great capital. The holy angels, I think, have a knack of drawing up one's mind to God by being at once so awe-inspiring and at the same time so obviously inconclusive. The attitude of the angel in the apocalypse, who will not let St. John worship him and bids him worship God instead, is permanently their attitude. And at the same time, the glimpse we catch of those angels who veil their faces before the throne warns us that the loud, confident tone in which we cried, Sorsum corda, must be modified a little as we reach the threshold. That slight drop of the voice for the Sanctus just chastens our praises with a salutary touch of awe. On that threshold we pause a little to remind ourselves that we are not alone. In case we were in danger, the younger of us, anyhow, fresh from the splendor of ordination, a feeling self-important about the tremendous office we hold, the tremendous business we are transacting, we reflect that the man who stands here is only a priest of the universal church. At the moment when he consecrates, he is the particular unit in whom her prayer is being manifested. He is the particular sentry who happens to be posted at this particular spot, under orders from his bishop. He must think of himself as an inconsiderable unit of this great army, whose whole cause now, all the multitudinous needs of the church of God, he proceeds to recommend to God. Then, and not till then, he may make his private memento. A sudden close-up for a moment, the feature of one particular individual or one particular situation disentangle themselves from the general muddle God's world is in, and stand out clearly before your mind. There, that is enough, we shall not add to the value of the Mass by interpreting it with our own wool gatherings. Our intention is not the only intention. Each of the worshippers behind us has a private one, et omnium circumstantium. Take just as much notice, Lord, of theirs as of mine. But after all, we are all communicantes, we are all parts of this tremendous whole, the Church. And we all share the intercessions of the saints, who are the Church's property. Whether Paul or Cephas, all are yours. Then the familiar string of names. Italians, most of them. What does it matter? All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let us get on with the Mass. You hurry on to the consecration after a few more last-moment gestures as if to make the still and consecrated elements less unworthy of what they are going to become. And then, with the consecration itself, you go off on quite a different track. You stop making up prayers, thinking up reverential epithets, piling strings of participles together. You don't ask God for anything, or apologize for anything, or try to induce any attitude or any frame of mind in yourself. You simply stand there and record a piece of history, In recording that piece of history, it becomes necessary to recite some words of our Lord. And so, as if absent-mindedly, almost as if unintentionally, you do what you came there to do. Or rather, you don't do it. You suddenly pull yourself together and realize that our Lord's words, even relayed on such lips as yours, have done it. A moment ago, you could move your hands quite freely. Now, An extraordinary sort of paralysis has fallen on them, so that it is impossible to separate the thumbs from the index fingers. Christ has used you to do a miracle, and everything has become quite different. You elevate the host, the chalice, or are they trying to fly upwards out of your hands? You hardly know it is all so strange. Anyhow, you start offering this precious thing that has fallen between your hands, You connect it with this and that, the mysteries of our Lord's life, the Old Testament sacrifices, the ministry of the angels in heaven, the expectation of the faithful dead. Another string of saints' names occur to you, but all this you do in a half-dazed way, still thinking about what is it that lies before you. And then, boldly, you take up the host and chalice together and hold them up for a breathless moment. And then suddenly you are talking out loud again and feel the ground sure under your feet as you find yourself saying the Paternoster. I suppose each of us have a clause or a phrase of the Mass at which, if it wasn't for the trouble and confusion it was going to cause, he would like to die. Mine is the Noster. It is to me the moment in the Mass at which one is most consciously, most fearlessly talking to God. Almost immediately afterwards, at the end of the Libera Nos, we start doing something we haven't done in the Mass since we said the Gloria, except, except perhaps momentarily in the collect. We start talking to Jesus Christ. The sacrifice is over. The banquet has begun. And we do what we can do to reconcile ourselves to the bewildering fact of this condescension to our needs. Ate nunquam separati permitas. That is the kernel of it. When that is said, all is said. So the priest gives you communion. If the priest is yourself, you are hardly conscious of that. You are receiving, not giving. As for the communion of the faithful, at least if there are many, how difficult it is not to feel this as an interruption in my Mass. But of course there is no such thing as my Mass. We are all ministers before we are priests, and it is for us to wait hours if need be. On our ministering. And so the Mass comes to an end, in a whirl of purifications and postscripts that do not seek to impress themselves deeply on the mind. One has not enough capacity left for receiving impressions. There is a tag which occurs frequently in the Old Testament and once in the New, and every man went to his own house. That is what we do at the Ite Misaest. The coming of Christ to our souls is the thing too intimate for liturgy, we must be alone. As the priest gives the blessing and says the lost gospel, he is only, as it were, covering his retreat. We know it is all over, really. So much drama every day of our lives, and how little we are thrilled by it.